All right, and welcome back to episode three of Jack of All Trades. Um, today we're going to be covering investing. Uh, Kalen, how's your uh, trading this week? Uh, it was, you know, okay. <laughs> you were you were kind yeah. of staying out of the markets there. Yeah, I guess. Um, well, when this episode airs, what it'll be like two weeks from now. So this week is what are we January 9th right now we're recording this. So yeah, I was talking to you the other day because I was just noticing that the markets were just like basically crazy for a lack of a better term. And it's one of those things where you got to know when it's above your pay grade. And you know, a lot of the big time traders that I follow were losing a bunch of money this week. And none of the trades that I usually play were working out. So I just decided to take the Friday off and just kind of, you know, relax and wait for things to settle a little bit before I start playing again. Because a lot of people don't realize, especially like in day trading and stuff like that, is like the market comes in those waves, right? Like you get, you know, like summertime, for example, like things are just really slow. Like you're lucky if you get maybe like two or three movers a day and then wintertime, everybody's trading. So you're getting, you know, 10 movers every day and you just got to watch for those waves and no one, no one to kind of take a breather. <laughs> I, know, I got scared. I got scared out of the market Thursday night. The freaking Capitol Hill gets rushed by a bunch of hooligans and like the next day the market just goes straight up like what the hell yeah i don't understand i don't understand so i love it i'm reading this book right now and like all these traders in this book that are like legendary traders from the 60s and 70s the common thing they all keep saying they say you know don't don't listen to what anyone else says like they say just look at the market whatever the market's doing that's that's what you got to watch that's what's happening until the market shows you that it's going to turn down like you don't want to try and anticipate anything because it doesn't matter what's going on in the world or if people are telling you they think it's going to crash. Like, just watch the market. The market will show you when it, when it's going to crash or when it's going to keep going. Yeah, and uh, and that ties into investing today because a lot of it is you're not looking. You're not look, just looking exclusively at the charts anymore. You're looking at some macro events. You're looking at the market. You're looking at politics. You're looking at uh, economics. A lot of different things. So yeah, we got a question actually yeah, on um, on our Instagram account. Uh, which ties in perfectly for this episode. Uh, the question was um, from Mr. Canada, 2018. He says, um, what is the first thing you look at when deciding to buy a company? And that was in reference to investing. And I thought that's a good way to start because, well, I'll give you my answer to him and I'll give you the long answer. But the, my answer, my short answer to him was like, you should look at companies that, you're, uh, that are in industries you have interest in, right? Because you're gonna, you should expect to be doing a ton of research, not just on the company, but also on the industry, their products, and the greater market. And so, like, if you're looking at to invest in Procter and Gamble, do you really want to look at toilet paper sales or like shampoo sales? Like, you know, I think that's, I don't, I don't think a lot of people get <laughs> maybe somebody would, but right. But like personally, I'm into stocks, and I know a guy that I helped recently to get into the market, and he's a he's a he's a gamer. So he looks up esports, right? So that's 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 your interest area, right? You would know what games are popular, what games are glitchy, and so it's easier to research a company from that respect. So I would always recommend start in an industry that you have some sort of interest in. Right, that makes sense because you're you're in all the tech stuff, right? Because you like all your you know your your cameras and your wires and all that fancy stuff. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing. I knew enough about camera camera companies to know not to invest in them. Really? Because I, I knew the sales have been declining for years, for years now because camera phones have been getting better. So the, people are buying up cameras less and less these days. Right, right. Right. So, so then in that respect, it helped me. Yeah. So are you looking at like for you personally, are you looking at like just tech, like just tech in general? Or are you looking at like, you know, specifically batteries or specifically, you know, like power sources or like what, you know, do you have kind of a focus or are you just looking for anything that seems like it's... Uh, feasible for a good investment in, in that industry 
Yeah, so when I first started, I started with just what I know, because that's what, what Warren Buffett recommends, right? You have a circle of confidence, stick to it. And I knew Apple products, so I invested in Apple. And okay. I knew a ton about Elon Musk from back in the day, from PayPal days, so I invested in uh, SolarCity and Tesla. But even though over the years, I've kind of still held those stocks, I've kind of widened my, uh, my strategy a little bit. Because the more I learned about uh, investing, the more I realized that the companies that do best over time or over decades are usually industry changers. Right. Right. So like the guys, like if you go back 30 years, the top 10, 15 billionaires are usually in the semiconductor industry. Like they made computers, right? Microcomputers, home computers. And then you look at the 2000s, all the billionaires are Internet uh, billionaires. Right. So you look for areas where the industry is about to have a, have a little bit of a shift and you get in early, you kind of pick the winners and losers and you get in early. Right. There's a, there's a saying like a rising tide floats all boats. So even if you're, you're, you're somewhat wrong with your pick, just because the industries, it's a growth industry, you know, like electric vehicles, it's literally 2% of sales of all car sales uh, today. Right. So that's, so if car sales never increase going forward, that's still a 98% growth opportunity for these electric vehicle companies. Right. So just, so, so that's what I want. I want to look at an industry that's growing. And then I want to look at the top dog in that industry, which is Tesla. Right. Right. And then those are the guys I invest in and maybe a few flyers on the side. One of the things I was thinking of too, like, you know, I don't, I don't obviously know nearly as much about investing as, as you do, but just looking at it from the outside, you know, like you talk about Tesla so much and I was thinking not even in the, you know, in just the sense of who's going to have the best electric car. Like at this point, it's almost like, it almost seems like it's more of a race to who's going to have the best battery because there's going to be so many more things that are going, you know, completely electric that whoever, it's not even whoever necessarily comes up with the best car technology, but whoever comes up with like the best battery technology to me seems like, you know, someone that would have huge potential in basically any, any power market in the world, right? Like if, you know, if Elon Musk comes up with this incredible battery that lasts 10 times longer than his competition, you know, they're going to be putting it in solar panels. They're going to be putting it in cars. Obviously they're going to be putting that technology in phones. Like, you know, that's a huge, huge market to tap into. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good point. I actually had to learn a little bit about, about battery chemistry, just, just, just to kind of address that question. Cause it, it did come up in my head a few times. And um, one of the things, with, so there's, there's a bunch of different lithium ion battery technologies, right? The, depending on what metal you put in there, it changes the chemistry so that either it has um, a more power density, but less out, output or more output and less density, right? So, you, so Elon wants to find the best battery that has a nice balance of the two. That's why his cars are such great performers. They're, they have great range, but they also have great performance, right? right. So like the, 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 the most electric cars in China are using nickel as a base metal, as a cathode. And what that means is the um, their range is absolute dog shit, right? Yeah, but they're cheap, out, right? Yeah, but they're like thirty percent cheaper than any battery Elon has. The difference, though, is in China you're not really going anywhere long distance. It's not like America or Canada, right? So you get like two hundred kilometers, three hundred kilometers. That's actually pretty good. Yeah. Right. So, so that's one of the things. So I looked at a bunch of battery technologies, and you're right. The one of the ones I wanted to look through, look at was like you never want to be blindsided by a breakthrough that kind of just destroys the company that you invested in. And uh, and from what from what I was looking at, like QuantumScape is one of them. They just came out, their stock just went up and just tanked recently. But so they came out claiming they had a better battery than uh, than Tesla's. Um, but the truth of the matter is, if you if you learned what I learned about uh, batteries, they actually on the same path as Tesla. They're both in a race to to develop the same thing. It's a tabless battery technology, right? It's very similar, very similar chemistry too. Um, so it's like it's really easy to get misinformed and invest in a company like that and be like, oh, they're going to destroy Tesla. But it's like, actually, they're on the same track. They both agree that this, this technology is the way to go. 
it's just a it's kind of a race to see who's going to get there. Right. Right. And the and the problem with investing in QuantumScape, like as as of last Friday, I think they were like a forty billion or sixty billion dollar company with zero revenue and zero future earnings for, for like three years out, four years out. So like, like what happens if they run out of funding? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, right. that's so, yeah, those things you got to look for. And like when you're searching the fundamentals, right? Is how much, yeah. how much cash on hand do they have? You know, how, like I know, like for me on the day trading side of thing, like one of the things when I look for, um, you know, like swing trades or stuff like short term swing trades is I'll look at, I'll look at companies like, cause most of the companies I trade are just junk companies cause I'm, I'm just trading patterns. Right. But you, you can actually look in the balance sheets, you know, in their, in their SEC filings and you can, you can determine like months before when the company's going to run out of cash, like almost to the week or to the day. So, you know, you, you do the math and you look in there, you figure, you know, the company's burning X amount of dollars per month and they only have this much cash on hand as of March. So I know that, you know, each month they're burning through this much cash based on all their expenses right now. So as of, you know, say September 30th, something's going to have to happen. And then usually sure enough on September 30th, they either come out with some news article that they have some fantastic new thing that I'm just going to pile on short or they actually raise money. <laughs> yeah. Nicola, perfect example of it. Yeah. Dog shit company. But, but this is, I, I thought this might be a trading opportunity for you though, considering how high quantum, like how volatile quantum scape is their market cap and their volume, but even though they have no technology, so it's a very volatile stock. Right. Like, I don't know if you look at the charts for it, it might be a good oh, target for like swing trade or day trade. Yeah. Hmm. Take a look at it, but my, it's an interesting, uh, might be an interesting for a trade, but not an investment. Yeah. Um, but as far as investments go, Sam, can you pull up my screen? I just wanted to touch on the fact that I don't think a lot of people are aware, but there's actually different types of investing. Um, and it's important to know who, when, when you're listening to interviews and getting their feedback on like CNBC and Bloomberg and whatever, and you're listening to them talk, like a lot of the, what they say is only applicable to them. Uh, because of the type of investor they are, right? So I, I consider my lineage uh, value or long-term investors. So that's Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, his partner, Peter Lynch, Howard Marks, right? These guys will look for good companies and they're looking to hold 10, 20, 30 years out, right? They're looking for steady gains over a long period of time, right? So there's a certain set of uh, research and things you need to do uh, to identify those companies. And then there's speculative investors like Kathy Woods. She's has a uh, arc invest right now she's like the hottest thing on wall street because she's got a few few funds that are just doing like two three x a year right and i say speculative because what they do is they don't look for companies that are somewhat established and are profitable they go ahead look into the futures and try to guess what industries are going to be changing and what new industries is going to be right so raul paul is huge on the crypto industry um and kathy woods is huge on nanotechnology dna resequencing electric vehicles so and she's she's got a little bit of Bitcoin too, right? So when so you so the, that's the speculative investor, and then there's the activist investors. You probably heard of these guys; they're all billionaires. Carl Icahn, Jim Channels, Bill Ackman, right? Whatever these guys say, it's interesting, it's fun, it adds color, but it's really almost useless because what these guys specialize in doing is they bu they'll buy a minority share, a large minority share, even majority share in a company, and they'll force the company to do stuff. They'll bend them to their will, basically, right? Carl yeah, Icahn. Those are the yeah. guys see in the news all the time, right? Like I know Ackman, I don't think he's made yeah. money three years and then he made a couple billion over this last uh, this last crash in 2020, right? Yeah, Ackman's a gambler. Like he so it's funny. I think we were talking about that the other day. Um Ackman lost billions, bleeding billions, because he shorted Herbalife. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right, right? Yeah. And the problem but the problem was 
he he went into war with Jim Chanos because Jim Chanos is like, oh, you're shorting Herbalife? I'm going to start buying the shares. <laughs> yeah. So it was like a battle of titans. It was pretty yeah. funny, right? So and, uh, he had, and Bill Ackman ended up losing that war. He was right fundamentally. I, I saw the, his numbers and I saw his analysis and I agreed. Herbalife is a bit of a Ponzi scheme, but you know, it, it, when you're shorting a stock, it's how long can you last? Because you got to keep paying that that little interest of 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 holding that those those shares short. Yeah, not to mention you right? can lose more money than you invest. Oh yeah, and like how long can you continue have it to move against you before you just call it a day? Because you yeah, know, exactly. So he lost billions on there, but then he, he made billions back this year, like you said, um, uh, betting with the CEOs. Right. Clatter, collateralized debt opportunities. So. So what do you? Um, you think like for someone just like in your opinion like i know you've been doing this for like eight years like you know someone like me for example i'm just getting into long-term investing now so like what what would you recommend for someone who's just starting out like you know they've you got a few thousand bucks or whatever like are you like would you think you'd be looking for long-term investment like are you looking more for swing trades like you know like i know long-term investing is probably the safest like anybody could put money in you know say microsoft and like you're pretty guaranteed that you're going to make steady money for the couple of years, but it's not, it's not going to be, you know, you're not going to be making 40% a year kind of thing. So like, what do you think is the best bet for someone starting out with the, who doesn't have the kind of capital that Warren Buffett has? Yeah. So I, I would recommend, like we have recommended, I think it was done the first episode, find something that suits your personality. Cause if you're a risk averse person like me and you go into like speculative assets, <laughs> that's a bad time. That's a really bad time. Right. And if you went into like long-term investing and you're, 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 you're more of like a trader. So like, I don't know if you could wait it out, like the boredom, the, the patience it takes you, it, it would, you might, you might want to cash out if you see like a 10% move on like an Apple or something like, ah, shit, I got to take the profit, you know? Yeah. Right. So. <laughs> So I think it's important to identify your personality, but um, I also think it's important to know, to figure out whether or not this is money that you can afford to just you know, tie up for 10 years, for 20 years, or this is money that, you know, maybe you want to invest it for five, eight, 10 years, and then pull it out to buy a house as a down payment or something like that. I think that those right. are a few things you, you, you got to kind of figure out. Um, because it, If you want to do it like as, you know, like, do you want to do this like full time for a living or do you want to, yeah. or, you know, or is this kind of like, a retirement fund or is this uh you know i want to buy a cottage and you know seven eight nine years fund right so that kind of that probably plays a lot into and in how long you want to keep that money tied up and what kind of returns you need yeah exactly exactly so it's important to like like i started off as just retirement because i'm self-employed so i'm like i don't have a pension start investing my own money so most of my 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 portfolio most of my my assets are in a long-term uh, rsp account um, which I think really benefited me in terms of learning to invest because I because knowing that it's in an RSP, knowing that I can't touch the money until I'm 65, it forced me to make long-term decisions. I'm only looking at companies that's going to be around 10, 20, 30 years or growing for 10, 20, 30 years. Right. Right. And I and I only recently opened up that TSFA for more speculative trading, like swing trades and stuff. Um, but yeah, so like I, I I wouldn't be able to recommend either of these to anybody, but I would say identify those factors. And then figure out and then go from there okay yeah because right. I, I know we've had this talk before like for me for me right now like i'm i'm learning about swing trading and stuff like that so like kind of i wouldn't say that the long long term stuff invests me for growth in the actual stock but like one of my main focuses right now is basically putting a lot of my winnings from day trading into dividend stocks because i just love the idea of you know i get you know i can get i can make five percent per year on my investment and it's actually paid out right like if you invest in if you invest in something like, you know, Microsoft or whatever, and well, they have dividends, but if you invest in a company that doesn't have dividends, you're not, you don't actually 
get any money until you sell the stock, right? Whereas if you put it in stocks that have dividends, you know, you're you're still getting your say three, four, whatever percent per year growth, but you're also getting paid out four percent of your total investment on dividends. And that's going right into your bank. That's money you can use right now. Yeah, that's right. That's actually a good point. Um dividend stocks are good, growth stocks are good. Anything else is is not a good investment. You don't want to invest in a stock that's kind of trading sideways or maybe just following the SP, but they're not giving you dividends and not really growing that fast that's just dead money this dead weight and yeah. i had a few investments like that too actually this is a really good lesson um so you know how i i wanted to invest in industries that are growing um so there was a period there where i, I invested in uh dropbox and box the cloud storage companies okay so this was in the early days and they, they were like 18 20 a share the, the problem was for three years they were about 18 20 a share they just didn't grow and this was a really important lesson for me because uh, it helped me. I, I had to figure out why. And it was because there are some industries where it looks like it's fresh and it's new. But once these new entrants prove that the industry is viable and profitable, other monopolies can jump in there like with a snap of the finger because it's just well-funded and it's like, a, it's like a sister industry to them. So it's not too foreign. But just jump in there and eat these guys lunch, right? So right. you know, Dropbox and Box were the early guys. They they went in there and proved that cloud computing, uh, cloud storage was a good thing that you can make profit off of it, off of it. And suddenly Google's like, yeah, we'll do it for two bucks a month. We'll give you a terabyte, mm. right? And then Apple iCloud comes in like, yeah, well, two bucks sounds good. We'll give you a hundred megabytes or hundred gigabytes, or whatever. And then Amazon's like, we'll give it to you for free, <laughs> right? Yeah, Prime, we'll give it to you for free. Right, right, so, right. Right, and so like, what, what's Dropbox or Box going to do now? Right, yeah, that makes sense. Right, so they, so that's what. So I got blindsided by that, but that was a really good lesson I learned. I, I think it was super valuable because I'm going to be looking for this stuff going forward all the time now. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the other thing that I I think is kind of uh, you know different to to the way that both of us trade is you know like you're saying on that one particular you know that that one lesson took you three years to learn. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, three for me, years. I, I can learn a pretty painful lesson in about 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. But that that's a good point though. That leads to another good point. Like I think I think I, I think you'll agree. Like trading, even swing trading takes a lot of effort, a lot of you have to put a lot of patience and attention into what's going on in the market. Whereas investing, you kind of sit back a little bit. Like that was a three year mistake, but I wasn't looking at it every day, right? I was still doing my own thing and every once in a while, maybe on weekends, a spare hour or two, I'm just trying to figure out hmm, what's going on, right? Yeah. So well, I think the thing with it, like those two is like is you're not you're obviously not like buying and selling, but I know I know you do this a lot with Tesla is you have you know, you have your core investment that you bought however long ago and you're kind of you know you have a small chunk of those shares that you're basically trading on the way up so you know you're selling into pops and you're buying those same shares back on dips and you're just kind of you're paying yourself you know little bits and pieces on the way up which is something that you can always do too even even on the really long-term stuff you know you, like you look at you had a crash like we had in 2020 or 2008 like that's that's one of those things where if you if you really see that coming i mean even you know if you're investing in a bank or you're investing in RBC or, you know, something like that. That's like, you're going to hold that for, you know, 20 years. You can still sell your position at the start of a crash and buy the whole position back at the bottom. And then you're getting all that money in the bank and then you can still hang on to that and keep the long-term swing going. Yeah. A hundred percent. I'm just going to plug our uh, previous episode on day trading because we, we get into the how to read charts and uh, patterns like that. So, and it applies here, right? Even though it's a shorter time frame. Yeah. So like, I know, I know we talked about that too, like, like on my swing trading and stuff that I'm doing now, like you've missed out on, I think two stocks that I've told you to buy now <laughs> that I've made, made a little bit of money on because <laughs> we, yeah. what I did is like when, when I bought these stocks, you know, I, 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 I bought half my position, 
you know, when we when we found them and then I put another buy order on lower. So like what I'm doing is, you know, I'm, I'm expecting the stock to go up over, you know, X amount of time frame. So I'll put on half the shares now so I don't miss out. And then I look at the chart pattern. And I'll say, OK, you know, I hope it comes down to here so I can buy the rest of my position. But if it doesn't, at least I still make some of that money. Right. So like yeah. when you're like when you're investing in stuff like that, like, you know, if you're if you're doing this long term swings, how do you how do you deal with like risk management and stuff like that? Like, are you doing are you doing like, OK, I'm going to risk, you know, a five percent loss total or are you risking off this point on the chart or like how do you, how do you how does that play into your decisions? Uh, I told you, I think I told you last episode, I don't, I have, a, I developed a bad habit of not setting stops and that came from investing <laughs> Okay. because, because my, my philosophy, and this is the things that I got from Warren and Lynch and Howard Marks is that, um, when you're investing in a company, you, you begin with a thesis, right? You have to understand why you're buying into this company. Peter Lynch says that all the time. You have to understand what it is you're buying into and why, right? So my biggest investment now is Tesla. My thesis is this is the best company in an industry that's in its infancy. So it's got infinite room to grow, right? And now they're going to become, they're starting to morph into an energy company, right? And so they're, they're, they're expanding to other horizons too. So as long as their narrative continues to evolve in a positive way, I will never sell that stock no matter how low it goes, okay. right? If I see a dip that's like in the 10, 20, 30%, I'll check this, I'll just scan the news and I'll be like, well, why did that happen? Generally, it's because it's a market-wide thing. Every, every once in a while, because they, you know, we talked about that in the, in the previous episode, they issue some more shares to fund operations. So they, they'll kind of dilute the, uh, their, their shareholders a little bit. But usually that's why the, you know, once Elon's tweet to set the stock down 10%, but yeah, but like, you know, but like read Wait, the tweet, oh, yeah. like understand. Yeah, it's like just kind of understand why that happened and if it didn't if their fundamental business hasn't like that tweet didn't change their business it doesn't affect their sales it doesn't affect their r d it doesn't you know right so it's like if somebody sees a 10 percent dip and you realize that's why it dip that's a buying opportunity right so for someone like you that's doing lot like really long-term stuff like that you you probably wouldn't even sell on like a like a market crash or something like that you'd probably just end up buying more like just wait and buy some shares on the way down or try and try and get some more near the bottom if anything right yeah. Um, there, in the last eight years, I've only been out of Tesla once, like sold every share once. Okay. But that was in order to leverage to get more shares. Actually, I, I want to tell this story because it was like, this is before I learned technical analysis. And this was like the best trade I've made that had nothing to do with technical analysis. It was literally just studying the fundamentals and just kind of making a small bet based on knowledge that most people didn't have because they didn't research. So like I said, I held at the time I sold all my all my Apple stock and I only hold two, three stocks at a time. So I had Solar City and I had Tesla. And Solar City was like a sister company of Tesla's. And at that time, uh, Elon came out of nowhere. This is I think twenty middle middle of or early of twenty sixteen. Elon said that he was gonna make a tender offer to um, buy out Solar City. So basically merging the companies. And um and so when that when he announced that Solar City stock actually dropped, um, I forgot. I think he said he uh, one share of Solar City would equal to like 0.11 shares of Tesla, something like that. That was a conversion. Okay. And um, and so, but what I noticed was that there was a there was a there was a price. This is called arbitrage trading. So basically, you're arbitraging um, the differences. So if you were to convert that sh one share of Tesla into the equivalent shares in um, in Solar City. You would look at the market and realize that the Solar City shares were sold, selling for lower than what they should be worth if they were to convert. And this this is because Solar City was near bankruptcy at that time, 
And the reason it was selling lower than what it would convert would, was because I think the market was assuming that the, um, the merger wouldn't happen, either because the shareholders of Tesla would vote no, or the SEC would, um, would, uh, would, would disapprove of it. Okay. Right. So, so, that's, so there was like about a 13, 14% discrepancy. So I'll, I'll tell you how it played out, and then I'll tell you how I did my research. But how it played out was the, the merger did happen. And before that, I sold every share of Tesla I had. I bought, I put all that money into Solar City, and I actually still have the notes on Evernote. I can actually give you the formula. But I sold every share I had. I bought all into Solar City, and I figured out that if I held the Solar City stock and it converted in September, I would get a net in, net gain of thirteen percent in my entire portfolio. It's just, just like that, thirteen percent. Okay. Because that was the difference in price. Provided right? so, it actually happened, though, right? Provided, so, right? A provided. Right, so provided it actually happened, all my Solar City stock would convert to Tesla stock, and I would have thirteen extra percent than okay. I, than if I otherwise, right? And so yeah. that's what happened. So I ended up making the Solar City shares would just become Tesla stock, right? So you'd be back yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It was like it was like a seven to one or nine to one trade, something like that. I can't remember what it was, but um, but yeah. So I did that play and it converted back to Tesla. So I that at that point I was hundred percent into Tesla, and, I, and I've held that for the last three years. Okay. But how I did the math was because. Well, so I started my research off by saying you got to kind of this is this goes back to what um, Warren Buffett recommends is like you, you can't just know the company. You should know the management as well. You should know the CEO, the CFO. You should know their personalities. Like if you have a good company, but some, let's say their founder CEO left and they brought in this new CEO, this Harvard graduate jackass that really only cares about market cap and shares, then he's going to do whatever he can to increase shares, but maybe not necessarily make a decision that's good for the company. Right. Right. Now. Elon's the type of guy that's obviously put his entire net worth out um, to, to create the company. So he obviously cares about the company, right? Mm -hmm. So so, so my, my thoughts was like, he's not doing this to increase share value. He's doing this to increase the value of the company. And the other thing is he's probably not going to make an announcement in something that he wasn't sure was going to happen. Right. That's just, that's just my read on his type of character. He's not a bullshitter, right? So okay. my thought was, let's, let's go work backwards from that. If he's not bullshitting, then how can he be so sure? Well, you look at the board of Tesla, the major shareholders are his brother, his best friends, Larry Page, that owns Google, and some original VCs that are also his like really close friends. He's made them oodles of money. They freaking love him. So the board of directors would not vote against it. Right. right? And if you know the shareholders of Tesla, it's basically a cult. Whatever they, he says, let's do it, they're going to be like, okay, let's do it, right? Yeah, so, yeah. So from that perspective, there's no way the board or the company would vote no on the decision. It was just a matter of the SEC. Right. Right. It's funny and, like when you're saying all this stuff, I'm just thinking because like I know like like so much of what I do in day trading is like I'm I'm always thinking like psych like you know psychologically. Like I'm thinking looking at a setup and I'm like, okay, who who's on the wrong side of this trade? What are they thinking? And where are they gonna cut their losses, which in turn will move the stock more in the opposite direction, right? So when I, like when you're talking about this, I'm just thinking of you, you know, you used to play poker and stuff all the time. Like you're we're we're both kind of looking at the same things, only different. Like I'm looking at a chart and I'm thinking, okay. You know, if I shorted here and now we're here, like when am I going to start panicking and covering those shares that's going to push it to the moon, right? And you're, yeah. you're thinking the same kind of thing. You're thinking, okay, like I know this guy, like I know what he's thinking. This is, you know, this is what I think is probably going to be the best move. So it's 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 funny. Like I, I'm just sitting here and I'm thinking, like we're we're both looking at really similar things, but for completely different outcomes and like completely different parameters. Yeah, I mean, at, at the end of the day, we're, it's just us playing against the market. So it's like we're still reading the market, basically. How we're get, achieving our reads is different, but we're still trying to read what the market is thinking, like whether or not they're wrong or we're right. Because fundamentally, we have to be right in order for us to make money. 
Right. I just, it's, it's funny, like how, how big psychology and human nature plays into it. And a lot of people, I don't think realize that no, like, not I, at all. since I started trading, I've actually started reading a lot of books on, on like psychology because it's, and it's actually helped my trading a lot, believe it or not. <laughs> doesn't, yeah, have, actually, doesn't have anything to do with market patterns. It's just psychology and human nature. And it's, it's just, it's helped me tremendously in trading. Yeah, absolutely. I read a ton of books on mass psychology, um, sociology, like a lot of stuff. Because once you kind of understand, the more you understand about human behavior, the the more the markets kind of seem more rational to you. Yeah. Right. It's not just randomness anymore. Completely random. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's the part I think a lot of people fear. They're looking at this chart. They're like, I don't know what the hell is what caught. You know what I mean? It's like they, yeah. it looks so random. It's just random gibberish to them. But once you're once you're able to kind of read what's going on, it, that's when you can start making some money. Yeah, exactly. Because you start realizing what people are thinking and, you know, you got to sit there and think like even even if you're just a beginner, I mean, like that's that's all stuff that I, I, I think of now and, and go back to. Like I'm thinking like, you know, I'm looking at a chart, for example, and I'm thinking, OK, like I remember when I was a beginner, like I would have bought here or I would have sold here. Or I would have seen this and thought that was a good idea. Right. But like I was a beginner, so I would have been terrified in that position and I would have been ready to to cut my loss really quick. So like I'm I'm thinking of all that stuff that I used to think when I was just learning and I'm I'm applying that to what I'm doing now. So when I see things start happening, you know, every now and again I'll think, okay, like I remember when I was just starting out, I would I remember seeing the same kind of setup and I remember doing this and I remember getting out. And then, you know, because of me getting out, I remember seeing all the pro guys tweeting saying, Oh, all the newbies just got run over. Like <laughs> they should have made that decision. And I'm like, oh, I'm <laughs> now thankfully, but it's you know, it's 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 just all stuff to think about. You got to think of all these people at all different stages and how everybody be thinking at, at certain times of the trade, right? So yeah, that's right. Actually, on that note, I wanna wanna point out that um, I didn't start learning technical analysis until twenty mid twenty seventeen. So before that, I I, ba I based all my trades on fundamental analysis, just researching the company and industries, like what we talked about. Right. And then one of the most a common questions like I'm getting from people um, are how do you know when to get in or like Bitcoin's high right now should I buy or like Tesla's high right now should I buy right and my answer is um, putting technical analysis let's just say I didn't know technical analysis right I'm looking at Tesla and I'm like thinking well it's at all-time highs it's, it's 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 kind of risky to buy at this point maybe you want to wait for a dip right? right but the other but the other part of it is if this was the old me I would have thought it will probably dip but I'm looking at 10 years ahead and 10 years from now, I know it's going to be higher than this price. Right. And so these monthly yearly dips are irrelevant to me. As long as I look forward 10 years and I strongly believe, and I can kind of quantify with data that this company is going to be, you know, worth more than well, I'm, I'm betting on a 10 X from here, then buying now is not expensive. Right. So I guess, yeah. I guess in that sense, almost you're, it would really just depend on what your time frame is on the trade. So if you're looking at exactly. looking at you know uh, a two year swing on Tesla, then your answer would probably be no. Like maybe you don't want to buy it right now. But if your answer is you know I'm thinking about 10, 20 years from now, then you know correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe you'd recommend okay if that's the case, maybe you want to buy you know half now and then buy a little bit more on a dip or whatever, right? Assuming you don't know technical analysis. Actually, that's an excellent point. Um, thanks for bringing that up. The uh, dollar cost average, that's a very underutilized technique, mm -hmm. uh, right? You, like a lot of people immediately think that you have to buy everything at the beginning or sell everything at the uh, at one point, but you can just dollar cost average it. Like you said, take a position now, maybe a quarter or a half and wait for a pullback, right? If it doesn't pull back, it's fine. You're, you're, take, you're participating anyway. The stock's going up. You have some shares. 
no no big deal, right? But if it does pull back, you you got more bullets. You can fire them and you know hit your target. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if a stock's you know if a stock's a hundred dollars and you want to buy a thousand shares, you could buy five hundred to a hundred dollars, and then if it pulls back to fifty dollars, you could buy another five hundred, and then you're in at seventy five dollars, right? So. That's right. That's right. That's a perfect example. And the other common question, like while we're on the subject of Tesla, is um, um, they're like, so a lot of the criticism you could you probably hear on TV like every day is like, well, yeah, they they sold a record, you know, five hundred thousand cars this past year, twenty twenty. But GM sells millions on a, on a regular, you know, Toyota sells tens of millions, right? Um, so one, why is it worth so much? And two, what happens when the traditional automakers get in there, right? Mm. The problem with this view is that it's, it's, very, it's a very narrow perspective. Like this is why I researched the overall industry and the overall trends, right? And the perfect analogy, I was thinking of a way to, to, to give an example of this, but the perfect one I would think is... Go back to like 2007 when Apple came out with the first iPhone, right? The, uh, the guy, Steve Ballmer from Microsoft, laughed loud on national TV saying, you know, what was it, a $700 phone? No one's going to buy that touchscreen. Who cares? You know, like they're, they're just laughing at it, right? And right. its sales comes out. It's revolutionary technology. No one's debating that. It's the best thing out there now. But its sales are piddly compared to a Nokia or like a BlackBerry or something like that. And they're like... Right. And they're like saying it's an overpriced phone. It doesn't sell very many units. It's cool, but who's going to buy it? And I'm like, well, where the fuck is Nokia now? Yeah. Where's Blackberry. <laughs> like, so when you tell me, oh, GM does this many sales, I'm like, yeah, but are they even in the electric car market? Are they really in there? I got to give you a quick side note on this. I used to have a Nokia cell phone. I kid you not, I ran it over with a forklift. I swear to God. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. Back in high school, I used to do. <laughs> I believe it, man. I, I was doing renovations with my buddy in high school, my best friend in high school, and I was on a second story roof and I was texting and it fucking fell like just to the ground. I picked it up, just a couple scratches. And yeah. this is back when you could replace the parts, the, the, the shell too, right? So it's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, indestructible, man. <laughs> like for like $15 at PMO, I could buy the replacement shell and it's like brand yeah, new yeah. again. <laughs> so, you know, as much as I miss that, I think I'll still stick with the iPhone. Yeah. But yeah. but that's but that's exactly my point. I'm like, you need to look past the obvious, right? Like, you can't make money investing in companies. Well, you can, but you can't make a lot of money investing in companies and looking only at the obvious because everyone else is looking at the obvious. Right. So on that right. point, because you know so much about Tesla, I'm just curious. Like, you know, you're talking about GM or Honda or whatever. Is there like is there any concern in your in your point of view that you know maybe maybe like they're behind the eight ball obviously on these electric cars, but is there any way of them you know, technology this or, or coming up with this technology the same as Tesla has and because of their market share and everything just basically wiping them out because they can, you know, they can produce it so much faster. They have all these factories like, I don't know, is that is that a concern you think that they're just going to totally flip flop and they'll be able to do that? I think over time, if they really put their money and effort and, and experience into it, they can become competitive but i don't see them overtaking tesla and there's a number of reasons for that right so people say like you know they have the infrastructure they have the factories i'm like well yeah but their factories build ice cars they build fuel cars you have to retool everything to build electric cars right right we, wh why do you have an assembly line building a transmission there's no transmissions in electric cars that's gone right right so it's like having the factory doesn't really mean anything to me you have to go back and rebuild the tooling 
Okay. Right. So to, to build electric very, very long process, basically, to get to that point. Right. So, so there's several reasons why there's several reasons why automakers do OEMs have been slow to adopt EVs, and it's not. I don't think it's they're, they're smart people. I don't think it's because they think EVs aren't going to be the future. I think it's because their business model um, is fucked. If they start producing EVs, they will literally fuck their own business model. Right. Because because of the dealer networks, right? So they sell cars to dealers. They don't sell cars to consumers, right? Right. So they sell cars to dealers, dealers sell the cars, and dealers make money off the maintenance, right? So if you sell a $50,000 car over the life of the car, you're probably going to make another $50,000 off the maintenance and warranties and whatever, right? And then so that's how the car companies make money, selling parts to dealerships. Right. Right. That's their whole supply chain. Well, electric cars really don't have that many parts to replace, right? Except maybe the brake. Right. right? Maybe, right? So it's like they basically undermine their entire business model that's been profitable for them for decades if they were to switch to EV. So I think they're trying to figure out a way to kind of navigate that. And that's why they've been slow to, to move. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it sounds like they almost just need to like start it as like a whole separate business because it's, it's not something they'd be able to just, you know, flip and start doing that. It would have to be like, okay, we're going to open a factory specifically for this and grow that as its own little business silo. And then from there, we'll, you know, as we, you know, expand 10%, then we could pull 10% back on the, on the gas cars. And, and that's probably, yeah. How it's going to go then, but yeah, Exactly. There's a lot of complexities to what they're doing, right? So, like, imagine they they put ten percent of their 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 revenue towards R D towards electric vehicles. Suddenly, maybe their shareholders are not so happy, mm. right? Suddenly, maybe GM and Ford have to cut their dividends, right? Because that dividend is going to go into R and D and you know building out infrastructure, right? So, they, there's so much those guys are thinking about. It's not that they're stupid. It's not that they're slow, but it's just that they're kind of trapped. Yeah, yeah. Right. There's no apparent answer to how to get out of it. Yeah, that's a huge thing a lot of people need to realize too is that like when you when you do invest in a company, I mean that's money that the company uses to to you know advance and do stuff, right? So like a huge part of company decisions, I mean, you know, the best the best step might be to do, you know, X, but if we do that right now, we like we as a company and as business people know that, you know, it's going to be fantastic, but the problem is that, you know, it's like you said, like we have to pay way less dividends to get to that point. So now we're losing all our investors because they don't care about us in the future. Like they're just going to put their money in another company where they can still make, you know, make those same dividends. So they like they they don't necessarily care about the company. They just want to make money. So if the company is saying they're doing something that's going to cost them money or it's going to make them less money over a ten year period, everybody's going to say, "Well, screw that. I'll move my money over here." Then, right? That's a, that's an excellent point. Just imagine you're the CEO of like GM right now, right? And you announce an e electric vehicle program that's going to eat into dividends or cancel dividends for the foreseeable future, right? And then you start to see shareholders dump their money out. Like a lot of pension funds and sovereign wealth funds will park their money into dividend stocks because it's safe. Like GM's a safe company, relatively speaking, and they'll pay dividends, right? right. Well, if you're no longer paying dividends, those guys are out. Right. So what happens when your share prices drop? Suddenly your job as a CEO is, is kind of uh, questionable, right? Because you're there to bring market, uh, you know, share value to its holders. And if your share prices are going down, suddenly your job's in question. Right. Yeah, right. So really tricky waters to navigate properly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, basically what we're saying is this is going to be an incredibly slow process. Like it'll happen, but it's going to be, you know, it's going to be much, much slower than someone like Tesla, for example, who's done it from the start. Yeah. The other yeah. thing, I think is, you know, it's kind of superficial, but I mean, even just the name, like, you know, if I see a Chevy Volt, I'm like, oh, you know, that's a, <laughs> that's a piece of junk. But if I see a Tesla, it's like, okay, that Tesla, that name, like that's electric cars, you know? 
Yeah. I mean, that's that's the thing. When you're a new company, you're when you're a startup and you're kind of going to an industry where there's incumbents that are powerful and, and strong, like they're, they're basic, their main strengths are that they're well-funded, they have a brand name, and they have the network and infrastructure and, and political connections, right? So those are things you got to get over. Well, Tesla's gotten over every one of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Right? They've, so, they've, they've branded themselves from day one as what they are. Oh, yeah. yeah. So. so like, as far as there being a new company, that's just the, that's just the, a, a note, a, a kind of asterisk on a date now. As far as the advantages, they're all uh, there. You know, the uh, incumbents have it's all gone. They right. have no advantage over Tesla today. Hmm. Right. Yeah, and, and like so, so my so that's why my investment thesis was originally to invest in Tesla because they're the only game around. But now there's we have a lot of, you know, there's a lot of options out there. There's a lot of new companies. Um, Fisker is an American company that may do well. Um, I'm in Xpeng as well. There's yeah. Neo. There's a bunch of those electric car companies. So my bet would be. So if as an investor, I would bet on those companies, I would put my money there first. And then if I had extra money or, or I, I was feeling risky, I would look at the, um, the incumbents. And the, like, the first most profitable thing you can do is buy a company that's, that's a growth stock, that's a growing company in the growth industry, right? right? The second most profitable thing you could do is find a turnaround company. So there's a bunch of companies that's going to be, I think, have turnaround prospects right now. It's like Intel. And the and the um and like Ford, right? Those guys are getting their like Intel's getting its lunch eaten by AMD. And now Apple's saying we're making our own chips, so Intel's just like dead in the water. Right. Right. But they still have a giant war chest of billions of dollars. They still have all their, you know, the intelligent people. They have like they have um capital there to use, right? Mm -hmm. So and they're so their stock's tanking right now, but I would watch them. I would watch them to a point where and watch the news and watch the developments and listening listen on in their quarterly earnings reports to see what their technological developments are. And at some point, you're going to find an inflection point where the price and well, the price will be near bottom or maybe selling at a slight premium, but, but they have developments just maybe 12 months, 18 months on the horizon. Right. right? So I would get in on that stock and then those, but those aren't long-term holds. You, you only want to hold them for as long as the turnaround happens. Okay. Right. So, so, so on that note, like, what are you, like, I don't know if you want to get into this now, but like, what are you looking for in a stock? Like, where do you find your information? Like, you know, what are... What are some key fundamentals that you're looking at on stuff like that? Because we, keep, you know, we keep talking about like, okay, you want to find companies that are doing this and that, but like, you know, we we both of us could list off a dozen companies that are in that same position, but maybe only two of them actually have the fundamentals to be profitable, right? So, like, what are your what are your key things you're looking at? Like, you're looking at like earnings per share, you're looking at balance sheets, like, yeah. So it's funny, like, um, somebody messaged me earlier. They're like saying Tesla's uh, P and E price to earnings ratio is ridiculous, and I agree, but a lot of people think that that's the end all be all of deciding whether or not to buy into a company. And to me, that's, and I'll explain why in a bit, but that's not what I look for at all. Okay. So like, so, so Intel is uh, one of my, it's on my watch list as a turnaround stock. Right. And this is where we go back to what I answered earlier on where it's like, you really need to have an interest in the industry of the company that you want to invest in. So I right. like technology, not so much semiconductors, but I still un understand and like technology. I understand the industry. Right. And so because I wanted to get into Intel, I'm not looking at their financials at all. That's the last thing I'd look at. What I'm going to actually do is get my hands dirty and learn about semiconductors. I'm going to learn about um, all the, uh, the nanometers and how small their chips are. I want to understand the development, right? So Intel uses, um, uh, um, what's it called? Uh, oh, there's an architecture that they've been using for a while, the 86 architecture, right? And they went to the 64-bit architecture recently, right? Okay. So, so the, the, very the very little bit I read about that architecture was that it was good for a while, but now Apple's chip is smoking them because it uses a technology that's developed by ARM. 
and it's faster and more power efficient, right? And so my my idea is like, well, Intel can no longer innovate that old technology. So what I'm watching for is their their news of them saying, okay, we've improved this old technology by like 10x, or we where we've adopted this ARM technology and made our own flavor of it because ARM is actually licensed. So it's like it's not something that's exclusive to one company. They, right. they license their patent to anybody. So anybody can develop it. And, and it's actually free too. If you develop, you, you can develop ARM chips at a certain level for free, right? So that's the ones we're using in our smartphones. But if you want to go crazy with it and start developing on top of it, like Apple, then you got to kind of license it, right? Okay. But like, but this is what I mean. Like, this is the kind of stuff you have to dig into. Like, just because I want to invest in Intel doesn't mean I can't, I, sh- I, ha- I, 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 I need to learn about the, the, the chip architecture of it too, the, the, the whole fabrication technology, right? Okay, so so on that point though, like we're you know you're talking about Intel or you're talking about like Tesla or you're talking about Apple or you know some of the companies you invested in. Um, like I know you're saying you're not looking at the balance sheet for the fundamentals. Is that is that only because you know that these companies are already like established? Like you know for me, exa- for example, like like I might look to swing Microsoft to make you know five percent on a chart pattern I see set up or something like that. But like I wouldn't worry about the fundamentals personally because you know it's Microsoft. I know what it is. I know they're not going to go bankrupt and the next week kind of thing. But if you're looking at, you know, if you're trying to find a stock that's, you know, kind of flying under the radar, is that when you'd be more focused on fundamentals? Because obviously you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't look at, you know, some stock like that the guy's got in his garage, he's just building this software and like the software itself is fantastic. But, you know, the guys, he's got, you know, a hundred bucks cash laying on his desk and that's all he's got to, to develop this thing, right? Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a perfect point. Yeah, I, first of all, I only really invest in these large cap stocks. Like it's, you got to be over a hundred billion. Okay. Um, right. I mid cap, small cap. I don't even touch. Okay. Excuse me. Stuff um, like, like shorter term swing trades and stuff like that. Well, I'm just getting into trading. So like maybe, but, but this is all looking at these companies from an investment perspective. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Mid, mid- midterm, midterm, long-term uh, investing. So when you're looking at, so when you're looking at any of this stuff for investing, like any of these companies you've, you've invested in, like you're talking about technology, like you love all the technology. So you're, you're basically just strictly looking at like, the products of the company, the guys who are running the company, how they can, you know, beat their competition, all that kind of stuff. So you're real, really focused on what the company actually produces more so than, you know, money coming in or out kind of thing. Yeah, I'm looking at their product. I'm looking at their management and looking at their industry as a whole. I'm looking at their position in the industry. Um, basically, anything I can find that has nothing to do with financials. Okay, so that's pretty interesting because like I would have thought you would have been digging through balance sheets and stuff like that. I dig. Th- I might spend an hour digging through them, but there's not a whole lot they're going to tell you at the time you're digging through them, right? right. I, I I could I could look at Intel's uh, financials financials right now and be like, oh, that's a great company. I'll keep it on the watch list. But then like three years from now, let's say they've developed that technology, um, and their their financials look like dog shit, then I'll be like, well, no, I'm not going to buy it anymore, right? Okay. So, it's, but it's like it's the last thing to look for because the information I find will be useful, right? Because then. If it's like, say, three years from now, they don't end up being a turnaround stock. That's fine because I've learned a lot about this industry. I might start looking at AMD and be like, okay, well, maybe it's time to start shorting this stock because their 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 chip is getting a little long in the tooth. Okay, right? so that really almost helps you like go across companies then for investments because if you're looking yeah. at you know if you're looking at these computer chips, like if you're researching the Intel one, you know that'll give you all the knowledge you need to, like you said, and look at different companies. If Intel becomes a bad investment. You already have all that knowledge on the products in general, and then you can apply that to different companies as opposed to if you're just strictly looking at, you know, earnings per share, balance sheet, stuff like that. You spend all these hours and hours researching all that stuff on one company. You can't apply that to a different company. Yeah, exactly. I, 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 I guess I guess you, you made me realize that I basically try to become an expert in the industry of the companies that, that I invest in, right? 
a product expert, basically. Yeah, like 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 going back to the, the, the what we were talking about just a little bit earlier with QuantumScape, right? If I didn't know so much about Tesla and battery technology, if QuantumScape came out, I might have been inclined to invest in them. I would have taken a forty percent haircut in like two weeks, right? So it's like it's, stop loss. <laughs> yeah, it's stop loss. Yeah, no stop loss exactly. <laughs> right. So it's like so it's really beneficial for you to dig in deep. Just get just go and fall down the rabbit's hole of whatever company and whatever industry you want to invest in, and just become an expert into it. Okay. Right. So I honestly, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have really thought like I knew that was part of it, but I would have thought like a bigger component of that would have been fundamentals. But if you're, if you're only really investing in like, these big, you know, blue chip companies, that, that kind of makes a lot of sense. Right. Well, uh, on the topic of fundamentals. So uh, I wanted to explain the guy that, that said, you know, Tesla's P, I think just because of the recent spike, their P's turned into like press star earnings turned into like 17, 17,400, like something ridiculous. Okay. Right. So, and a Apple's at, at like a 30. Like the price to earnings, just explain that really quick, what that is. Yeah, so you get your price to earnings ratio by looking at the earnings divided by the price of the stock, right? So, and and this is the funny thing, right? So a lot of company, a lot of people, investors, will, new investors will look at the P&E, they'll be like, oh, it's, so you, you're supposed, to, in terms of value investing, a low P&E is a good company, good company, right? Apple's like 30, right? So in Peter Lynch's day, this is one of my idols, in Peter Lynch's day, he would deliberately look for companies that was in the 10 to 15 P ratio area. And then he would look into these companies deeply, like I just explained and see, well, why are they trading at such a low price? Is there something the rest of the market is not seeing? And if he identifies that this company is still growing or is still able to increase earnings or margins somehow, and is just trading at a discount because the overall market's wrong with their assessment of the company, then he'll buy into the company. And then what happens is when the price to earnings kind of increases to say 30%, then he just doubled his money. The price, he just doubled his money in the shares, right? right? So that's that's value investing. So that's where it came from the old days. The problem is PE ratio doesn't really mean much these days, right? It, because in order to get the ratio, you, your company has to be able to earn a profit, right? And so like <laughs> Airbnb has no profit, but, so, but how is it an $80 billion company? Yeah. Right? So, so, so you're telling me it's they're, they're, they don't even have a PE ratio. You know <laughs> what I mean? So like, how can you justify investing in that company? So you can't look at those things anymore. Right. Right. And the other thing that's about PE is it's deceptive. Like I said, Tesla's like 1700 something. It's because, you know, they're going to have like 20, I think 2020, they're going to have like $24 billion in revenue. And of that 24 billion, I think 500 million of it is profit. Okay. Top of the line profit, right? So that's why low profit, high market cap, that's why the PE is so ridiculous, right? But you, my only argument to that is, well, what if next year Tesla's big gig of Berlin comes online, the big Texas comes online, Shanghai goes to full capacity, they're building out maybe a million cars a year, you know, and, and when you double your sales at that size, you're not doubling your profit, you may be tripling or quadrupling because the infrastructure price costs are one-time costs, they're right. not ongoing costs, right? And so, like, it cost them X amount of dollars to build out a network of 2,000 superchargers, but that's a one-time cost. It's already written off in previous years. Going forward, you know, it's an asset, right? So right. it doesn't get marked into the price of the car anymore per unit sales, okay. right? So, so let's say they sell a million units next year, and they double their sales, but instead of making 500 million in profit, they make 2 billion, 4x, right? right. Suddenly, that ridiculous PE ratio is down to 350. It's more reasonable. Right. Right. So it's like in a 12 month period that that ridiculous numbers just become more reasonable. 
Okay. So is that pretty typical for companies that are kind of on the upswing like that though? Like when they go from yes, like barely profitable kind of thing and then all of a sudden it swings up and then once they start producing more and more and more, it'll come back down once they're profitable. Yeah, exactly. So people, a lot of people that don't, don't, don't realize this. And if you don't do the math on it, you, you don't realize how quickly those numbers could drop in, in line with something that's really reasonable. Um, just because they're a growth stock, they're growing sales, right? Most of their costs are not fixed costs. They're just infrastructure, one-time sales. Uh, sorry, one-time, one-time costs, right? Yeah. So, so like in short, basically that, like you're saying, if it's, you know, like, let's say your, your price to earning ratio is like five, that means the company's making insane amount of profits, right? It's making a, an insane amount of profit relative to the share price. So if okay. you're making a P like expenses as well, I'm sorry, is that relative to like the cost of operations? No, your profit is your, 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 your revenues relative to your cost of operations, but just your top of line profit, just what you made that year uh, compared to the price of the stock. I would actually be really concerned if a company was like five PE. Oh, that yeah? to me tells me last year they were 10 and the previous year they were 20 and they're, they're declining. Okay. So either so either their revenue uh, is declining or their or their share or their the revenue is staying flat but their share price is declining or their share price is just straight up tanking. Okay. Okay. Right? Um, but one but this might be useful for you though. One of the ways to look at PE in a useful manner is to look at them. Like if you get a stock, if you get a company that's got a PE of like twenty to thirty, most likely they're a dividend company. Okay. And it's and it's because they can't reward the company with. Um, the growth you get in the stock because it's not a growth stock anymore. So they have to reward shareholders somehow. So then they give dividends. Right. Okay. Right. So Microsoft, Microsoft 10 X in like 10 years. So, I mean, that's still kind of growing, but not really. And mm -hmm. so that's why they, they issue sh uh, dividends to their shareholders. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, well, it's like, I have like a fair amount of money in RBC, like RBC stocks, but their dividends are like, they're close to 5%. It's like, you know, a buck eight a share or something like that on the TSX. Right. And I don't know if you could pull it up right now, but I would bet that RBC's stocks basically traded sideways for the last five years. Yeah, yeah. They, well, they, yeah, like the past like three years, they basically haven't moved. Like they've gone up and down, but there hasn't been any like steady growth lines or anything like right, that. Right, right. So you that's, know, you know, it's paying me 5% a year in dividends. And, you know, I can just, I can sell that five years from now for the same price I bought it and I've still made all this money, right? Yeah. So, so generally companies with a, with a, with a medium to low PEs are companies that are strong, they're profitable, um, but they're not taking market share anymore. And it's probably a mature market. So the market itself isn't growing anymore. Right. Yeah. So, so that's, that's what you're looking at basically. Yeah. So because I'm an investor, but I'm, I'm an aggressive investor, I count myself as a pretty aggressive one. I want to look for growth stocks. Yeah. Okay. So are you you're, you're, like all the stuff you're looking at now is still like 10, 20, 30 years kind of thing? Or are you like, are you actively looking for stuff that you can swing over like a couple months or like, I know you do, you know, you do your little day trade scalps on like Bitcoin and <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah, like, yeah. I know before we got on here, you said you got up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and, <laughs> Bitcoin and then I woke up and like, didn't even realize you did it. <laughs> yeah. I didn't realize I did it, but I looked, I looked at the charts. I looked at the charts and I was like, what the hell was I looking at? I took a $40 loss. I'm like, get the hell out of here. Like, <laughs> right, I, I need to stop. I open an account so that it trades 24 hours. <laughs> asking me to, to lose all my self-control. <laughs> we might have to shut down the podcast. You might disappear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but yeah, like um, the bulk of my money is in Tesla. And it's because... <sighs> You could look at it me thinking that it's the best company out there or the best investment out there, but I'd rather look at it from the perspective of that. I would sell Tesla shares 
or I would I would trim my positions if I found a better opportunity. The problem is you can't convince me of a better opportunity right now. Right. And so uh, for the lack of a better opportunity, that that money's better used uh, held in Tesla. Yeah. Right? Just on and, that, I, I kind of want to make note of that. You say, you know, if there's, if you can't convince me there's a better opportunity right now. I just, I was just thinking like a lot of people, like y- you have to be so not stubborn when it comes to investments in the markets and stuff like that. Like, you know, if you ever get in a situation where like, you know, for you, for example, just as a situation, you know, f- you know, five years down the road, like you've been huge in Tesla for so long, like you think it's the greatest company ever. You have to be able to say, you know, okay, this other company maybe has shown up and they're an even better investment now. You still have to be willing to, you know, bite your tongue, take that off, and then put your money somewhere else if you think it's a better investment. Like a lot of people get in trouble because they get they get too attached to something or too attached to a trade. Like even even for me, for example, you know, I've said a million times, like I I, I can show you charts where I've I've bought a trade on a one minute candle, on the next minute candle I sold it, the next minute candle I bought it again. <laughs> like you know, I've I've just I've I'm I've changed my mind based on what I'm seeing, whether the chart's set up perfectly. Like I can still change my thesis based on what I'm seeing. So that's that's something you always have to keep in mind is you, you can never be too stubborn and you really have to keep an eye on what the markets are showing you and other companies and stuff like that and not get like blinded by what you knew for from five years ago kind of thing, right? Yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. I, maybe I should word it better. It's like it would be difficult to convince me of a better opportunity, but it's not yeah. saying that you can't. Uh, which is why I'm an I'm, I'm expert. I'm just saying like on that point, yeah. it's, it's you know, that's just kind of a point I, that popped in my head to keep in mind is you don't want to get, yeah. you can never get like too emotionally tied to something because it is just money, right? Yeah, it's a, that is a good observation. I do know people that have gotten very attached to certain stocks because it's done them very well. But at mm-hmm. some point you got to be like, maybe you got to sell it. Yeah, like it's no right. different than Blackberry. You know, that thing was fantastic and nobody... Oh. I think of like, you know, all my parents and my friend's parents, like the Blackberry, like the Blackberry, Blackberry. That's all you need. That's all I, I'm not, I don't need one of these touchscreen things. I hate them. And now it's like, oh, when's the next iPhone coming out? I love it. Like, you know what I mean? So you, yeah. you get too attached to something like that. At the end of the day, it's just like, you got to listen to the markets, you got to listen to the trends. And like, it's it's just money. Money doesn't care about you. <laughs> no, 100%. This is why, like, I recommend people become an expert in the industry because I'm, I'm always paying attention. And if something does come along, A, I'll be able to recognize it. Right. And be all, I'll definitely move on it, and which is why I, I've put a portion of my money into XPeng. And it's not because I think um, it will it is a better company than Tesla, especially not today. But right. I've done I've done the math and I think that it could it, it may have better growth prospects in the short term. So I know in XPeng, like we were talking about that. That's maybe you could probably explain it a little bit better. But like when we were talking about it, you were saying that they're not. The reason you like them is because they're not directly trying to compete with Tesla right now. Like they're basically just trying to ch- capture the Chinese market. Yeah. So, so there's several factors. This is just good that you brought it up. There's several factors I looked at, and all of them, and it was the combination of them that convinced me to to buy into this company. So, one, I was looking at Chinese companies, purely Chinese companies, uh, because looking at the macroeconomic environment five years ahead, even ten years ahead, I think China's going to outperform everybody. So, I wanted a company that's that's a growth stock in China. That's a Chinese-based company um, to invest in. And then obviously EVs is something I know something about, so that was easy to transition to. And then the the the, the third one, like you mentioned, was that because uh, it was because I liked their business model. Um, a, they have no intentions of, of coming to to, to American or North American market right now. They're kind of dabbling in Europe, but they've they've sent shipped like a thousand units there. It's nothing. They're just dabbling there. They're mainly focused on the Chinese market. Um, so that's that's that was that's a really that's a really big bonus for me because China has declared that by 
I think 2030 or 2035 or 2040, they want most of the cars, if not all the cars on the road to be EV. Right. And, you know, knowing the Chinese government, if they want to get something done, they're going to get it done. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so they've already given a $500,000, sorry, $500 million loan to this company to build a second factory. So when you've got the support of the government and you've got a former Alibaba executive and the founder of, I think it was Huawei or one of those Chinese cell phone companies, like, and, and Sequoia Capital invested in them. So these are all the things that I look for. So the good management, good funding, like re reputable people are behind the company and their business model is good, which by the way, I should mention that uh, they sell a car that's somewhat comparable to a Tesla at like one fifth of the price of the Tesla. Their most expensive car converted to America would be $26,000. Hmm. So is, is, Tesla, is Tesla not selling cars in China then? Tesla is. They got the Model 3 there and they've just been approved to release the Model Y. Um, the problem is the Model 3, I think, ends up being 40000 something like that, converted over. I think oh. there was a price drop recently, but, but, but they're selling for quite a premium compared to what Xpeng is selling. Right. So Xpeng is producing comparable cars at a fraction of the price over there. Fraction of the price for two reasons. Uh, one, they, I said, like I said earlier, they're using that inferior battery technology with lesser range, but they don't care. Like people in China don't need that range. Right. And the uh, and and the second thing is, um, uh, because they have the the smartphone routes, they they they're willing to sell a product at a loss or break even just to uh, grab market share. Right. So they're they're not looking to make a ton of money right now. They're just trying to just kind of basically skate by and then just get the whole market. And then at that point, it's you know time to grow essentially. Exactly. Because they're looking ahead. They're looking at this is something that Elon pioneered that the Chinese companies recognized like almost instantly was that. A car is going to be a lot like a cell phone from now on, where you buy the car and you can you can continuously sell upgrades, software as a service. Right. And so that's what they're doing. They're they're giving they're get, uh, they have a Siri feature in the car now, where you can talk to the car and it give you information, data, navigation, whatnot. And then they're doing autopilot technology as well, right? So it's like you sell a unit of a car, you're going to be able to upsell them on software as well. Okay. Okay. Right. So so these things all combine. I'm like, this is a good looking company. Right. right. And Which, it's, and so, sorry, go on. No, no, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, so what, what's one of the things that you'd be looking at? Like, you know, obviously you're always looking for red flags. So like for me looking from the outside, like I'd just be thinking, you know, what if, what if we get to a point where Tesla's selling cars for the same price as their cars over there, but they have that advanced battery technology, would that kind of be like a, a time when you'd maybe want to get out of Xpeng or like, like, you know, obviously like you're just, you're just predicting essentially what might happen, but like what, what would be kind of one of the biggest scare factors for you right now, do you think, with that type of technology out there? It would probably be that. That's a good point. It would probably be that. Um, and Tesla has announced a 25,000 USD car, kind of like a coupe thing, built on the Model 3 platform. Um, but that car is minimum two to three years out. Right. Um, so f until then, like a lot is up in the air. So why not get in on this, um, get this trade, right? So Xpeng is not a, exactly a long-term holding for me, but at minimum four to five years, I would say. Yeah. Basically, yeah. Tesla kind of gets, you know, gets something cheap enough out there, right? Right. And right. And, the, and the thing is, um, I, I had some people message me and ask me, well, because I because I post that I bought Xpeng, right? And they're like, well, why didn't you buy Neo? All right. It's a little bit slightly older, older company, um, much more market cap and whatnot. It was like, well, this is where you got to look into the, the business model. They are, they are championing um, battery swap technology. They believe in building these stations where you park the car versus charging it, you swap out the battery. <laughs> <laughs> I 
and this is something Tesla explored like back in 2013. So they pioneered that and they 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 real they had a pilot uh, station in California. They realized it wasn't feasible. People didn't care about swapping batteries. Yeah. Um, uh, these guys have an interesting twist on it, which may or may not work out. It's that um, you could buy the car minus the cost of the battery, which is about eleven thousand dollars. Okay. So you could buy a fifty thousand dollar car for forty thousand dollars, take it off the lot, and pay like one hundred sixty bucks a month leasing a battery. Really, that's and Neo. Neo, yeah, and and leasing that battery, you can you you get like six swaps a month or something like that. Really. Yeah. So that's an interesting play on it, but I. But in my mind, I'm like the infrastructure you would have to build to have available battery swap stations. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's very feasible for like yeah. mass population. Yeah, like when you need it, and I'll charge it 100. percent Like, I don't know, man. <laughs> so, so, at, so like with that lease, you you actually like you you drive the car in, and they just put a new battery in your car. It's all automated. It just falls out the bottom, slide up at the top. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, so there is one huge benefit to this, though, that, that, that they are forward looking. It's that as battery technology changes over time, as long as the battery fits that form factor, they can technically say that you can get a new battery technology every time with an older car. You see what I'm saying? Like, like it, it, it would make sense if it's like, you know, because like we all know batteries don't last forever. Right. Neither do yeah. neither combustion engines, obviously. Yeah. But yeah, if, if it could be if you could use that kind of you know, technology to where like, even if a Tesla, you know, like a Tesla, I don't know how long the batteries last, it's 20 years or whatever. You can still take that car and, you know, drive it into that thing and they just drop the battery and pop a new one in like in, you know, 10 minutes or whatever. If you could do that, I mean, it would be, it would be beneficial and save a lot on, you know, mechanics costs and stuff like that. But I don't really, I don't really see that as a viable thing if batteries are lasting, you know, any less than like 10 years even. Yeah, that's, that's Elon's bet. He knows that the, the technology so well that he's like, our batteries will last longer than you would want to keep the car for. Yeah. And so like, or realistically keep it longer than, you know, like 10 years. <laughs> yeah. So like swapping it out is just, it's, it's a fun thought, but I don't think, um, like, like Neo's lose just bleeding money. I mean, just, just, you get to bleed money building all the infrastructure for that. So I, I don't want to be on that, that ride. I've traded them a few times just to show. <laughs> oh, it's a fantastic trade. <laughs> Have you seen Solo? Trade. Have you seen that one? Which one? Solo, S-O-L-O is the ticker name. No. It's another electric car, but oh my, man, they have this like, this little like, you know, Austin Powers when he's got like that little three-wheeler thing in gold member? <laughs> okay, okay, okay. That's what their car looks like. Okay. It's hilarious. And their business is right out of like an apartment building. Like it's, hmm. it's unbelievable, but they're the Are same. They any anytime Tesla starts going, Neo and Solo start going with it. Are, are they an Asian company? Uh, I don't even know enough about them, man. To talk about. <laughs> Trade <don't> us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because because I looked into that for a little while. There was some, there are companies making like those smaller, like weird, like tricycle motors, tricycle three wheel yeah. motorcycle vehicles. And I thought it was bizarre to, uh, for a second until I did some more research, and I'm like. Well, there's a lot of countries like Vietnam and Singapore. It's like high dense populated areas in India, especially where you probably can't even get a car through the roads. So something like that would actually sell quite well. I guess, yeah, yeah. I know. Obviously, I'm just thinking of like Canada over here, and I'm just looking at that thing driving down yeah. the floor. It's just not a good idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the, the problem is like you're not gonna get you're not gonna get good money selling those things. Like even if it's a high population, it's like it's probably a lower priced item with very thin margins like i don't know how profitable the company is going to be over time so i, I wouldn't invest in those hmm. all right yeah went on for like yeah. an hour do you want to do you want to maybe wrap it up here or? 
Yeah, I just, you know what I want to leave off with? Um, I think a lot of people have the idea that investing is is a waiting game. And it's like, we, were, we mentioned in the previous episode, it was like maybe 10% a year accumulation. That's a good year. Right. In general, that's a good year, especially if you have your portfolio managed by somebody. Um, right. Or if you buy an index. If you buy an index, God, maybe 5% a year. But stock picking. Stock picking is you can make a lot of money. That's what Peter Lynch. So, uh, I want Sam. Can you pull up the screen again? I just I'm hoping that people who are watching we could write down some of these names. Um, listen to everything you could find uh, on Peter Lynch on YouTube. This guy took he he was a fund manager at Fidelity. He worked his way up as a researcher and ended up taking on a fund himself. I think in his early 20s, and it was the uh, Magellan Fund. And at the time, it was about a hundred and it was either 134 million, it was like 13 million, something really low. And he turned that fund into, uh, I think about 14 billion by the time he left. He retired in 20 years, under 20 years, and it was 14 billion dollars. He like a thousand x that thing. And he has he has the record for the best performance of a fund manager of all time. He he increased the value of that that fund by 29 percent a year for 20 years. Wow, yeah, that's a good record <laughs> for 20 years. Yeah. Right? Very impressive. And, and he's not a Kathy Woods or a Raul Paul where he's like investing in nascent technologies that's going to just blow the doors off. He was investing in Toys R Us. He was investing in Walmart. He was investing in blue chip stocks. Right. And I, I, I mentioned just before we, we started recording that I lost this note, but it was a really good stat. I have part of it here. But um, so Walmart, when uh, after Walmart IPO 10 years later, about did about 10x, 10x its value. And he, that's when he invested. After Walmart was out for 10 years, it, had, it went from like a few dozen locations to 500 locations, 10x, and then he invested at that point because he, he asked the question, well, they have 500 locations, but how big is America? How big is Canada? How big is the rest of the world? So how big is the growth opportunity? And in the 20 years following his investment, um, Walmart 50x. Hmm. This is Walmart. Yeah. Right. So it's like... I don't care what number of dollars you put into it to, to your investment portfolio. 50 X is a, just an un, unreal number. Yeah. That's insane. Right. And he, and he, his, he even said his biggest regret was selling Toys R Us too early. He, he calls them baggers. So it's like, he wants to buy into 10 baggers. So 10 baggers, a 10 X. So he invested okay. into Toys R Us. It was a 10 bagger, got out of it, did another 20 bags. Hmm. So this is what I mean about identifying companies and growth. Uh, in growth industries, the, the 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 prospects of the of the stock itself are just phenomenal. Right. right. Yeah, that's insane. Like someone that can make that much money consistently year after year on long term investing. A lot of people might not realize it, but that's very very impressive. No. <laughs> no, and and that's why I think if you if you have the aptitude and you have the interest, get into stock picking. Don't buy an index. Don't follow the trends. Do yeah. your research. Have fun with some industry that you really enjoy looking into. Yeah. And just stock pick and become an expert in that industry. Like I rode Tesla from 2012 until now, and um, I've, I've I've made a lot of money in that company. Mm-hmm. And just and just uh, anecdotally, Sam, uh, our mutual friend, uh, he owns a bunch of sushi restaurants. One of the sushi chefs bought into Tesla in 2012, just, just a little bit of holdings, right? He never sold. Continued to increase his position over the, that time. It's well over a million dollars now. That that position. Yeah. 
yeah so but that's that's obviously something that you research in and you like you like it's like you said you got to know everything about it right like so many people the thing is you know they don't they don't want to do the work like you know you and i are doing like you're self-employed now but like you know i still have a full-time job so like i'm doing all this stuff outside of work hours which a lot of people aren't willing to do but i mean the bottom line is you could you could you know throw your money into an index and make your you know six seven percent a year or you could take the time, you know, research something that you enjoy, which should be relatively fun for you anyways, because you're learning about stuff that you like. And exactly. then all you're basically just buying into those companies that you know everything about. And like conviction is a huge thing on that, too, that a lot of people might not really realize until you get into it. Like, you know, if someone like even for you, like if you were to recommend Tesla to me, you know, 12 years ago or, or whatever, 2012, I mean, then, you know, I might buy into it because you've convinced me how to do it. But if I don't know enough about it by myself, you know, if I'm up 100% on the position, I'm probably just going to sell because I don't, I don't know what you know about the stock. So like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, oh, you know, I should probably take my money now. It's like, it's the same thing with the kind of trading I do. Like, you know, I could teach you how to play a specific setup, but if all you're doing is saying, you know, you're in a chat room and Kalen's like, oh, Kalen said, buy it now. So let's buy it. You know, are you going to, if it pulls back a little bit, are you just going to sell it because you're scared? Probably because you don't, you don't have conviction in that trade. So like the, I think the ability to sit in it like long enough and be really comfortable with it and really understand why things are happening. You, you like, there's no way around it. You have to do the research yourself. Like even if you have a fund manager, like you got to You got to know what you're in. You got to know why you're in and it, it'll just give you so much more. It'll just take the stress way down. Cause you're not going to get scared out of the dips. You're, you're not going to be selling on every little pop because you think it's, you know, as high as it's ever going to go. Uh, I think that's probably one of the biggest keys is just, you, you, you got to, you got to take the time to learn whatever you want to do and in investing yourself. Otherwise you'll, you'll never have the, the ability to stay in it long enough to make really good money. Yeah. Yeah. And actually that's uh, Peter Lynch's, I think number one suggest, uh, recommendation or advice for people that are getting into investing is like anybody can invest. Your mom can put some money into the market, but do you have the stomach for it? Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, if you're yeah. down, you're down a hundred percent on your position or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, a lot of people get scared. Look at this last market crash. You know, what if what if you bought your stock? You know, what if you bought a whole bunch of stocks in the company that you knew was great in January, and then it crashed down? You know, forty percent because of coronavirus. I mean, right. If you don't know what you're in, you're probably going to panic and sell and take a huge loss, and then you know, eight months later, you're right back up to new highs. <laughs> so. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, actually, on that note, um, I, I'm going to try my best for next episode to get uh, a friend of mine who works at CIBC on. He's okay. a trader at CNBC, and I think it's going to be re important for our viewers to, to watch this episode because we're going to talk about those financial advisors and um, how the vast majority of them are bullshit and they're try to, just trying to sell you products. Yeah, there's a lot of that out there that's yeah. unfortunate, but it's the way most yeah. industries are. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so stay tuned for that. All right, yeah, remember to like and subscribe, guys. Support us in our ventures, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> right, take care, guys. See you later.